Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, everybody. It's Jason here. Before we begin the show, I'd like to thank everybody for continuing to listen. We're always looking for ways to improve the podcast and find other listeners like you. And you can help us by filling out a brief survey at wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54 survey. That's wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54 survey. Thanks again for your support. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, Jason, the big news this week is all the negotiations going on in Capitol Hill over a series of of items that are both related and unrelated. And so I'm going to try to do justice to just everything that's happening. And just as a reminder, we record this on Wednesday afternoon. And so a lot of what I say could be updated by the time this airs on Thursday morning. But we have four things going on simultaneously right now on the Hill. Number one, we have a deadline coming up Friday morning where legislators have to fund the government and Republicans have blocked a stopgap measure that would have uh, just provided funding to keep the government operating because they want to attach it to the second item that's going on, which is the debt limit. And right now, we are days before not only the government runs out of money, but we're uh, hitting our ceiling on the amount of money the government could borrow. So those are kind of two different issues that are obviously related, like how much money we spend, but then how much we're allowed to borrow. And the third item is that we have an infrastructure bill that had earlier passed the Senate and now is in the House. And that negotiation is coming to a head right now where Nancy Pelosi has signaled that she's going to move ahead with that vote. And there's a ton of politics going on there that we're going to talk about. And then the fourth thing is that we have this huge $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill on social policy. Some people will call it uh, additional infrastructure, but it includes things that are outside of traditional hard costs of infrastructure. And the GOP is doing everything in its power with a couple of exceptions to stop all of these things simultaneously and try to link them all together. Uh, and they have voted down a couple of measures to to extend government funding and to lift a debt ceiling. And Democrats are, are trying to get these uh, all four of these things through with some semblance of bipartisanship. McConnell is playing politics here. So they seem to be betting that the politics of the Dems usual, uh, unilaterally raising the debt ceiling are good for the GOP and bad for Democrats. And this is what McConnell had to say. He said, Democrats control the entire government. They intend to sideline Republicans and go it alone to slam Americans with historic tax hikes and borrowing. So they're going to need to raise the debt limit on a partisan basis as well. Jason, I think what confuses me here is that 
how much do the American people really care about whether the Democrats raise the debt ceiling on their own or not? Like, is the hot button kind of political wedge issue that they're making it out to be? No, here's what I think it is. I think the answer is they want to literally make it out to be right. Like first they like the debt ceiling. We all know. I hope we all know at this point that the debt ceiling is not let's go deeper into debt like a like a just a yes or no decision. Right. It's just like, hey, we we owe people stuff. We have to adjust the books in order to not default. And it's it's something that, you know, it just happens periodically. And a few years ago, you know, when Obama was president, they decided to make it political. And at the time, even a lot of Republicans were like, this is really dangerous. But now they've just moved on to we're just going to pretend this is something else. We're just going to take the word debt and attach that to the Democrats because they're in charge right now. So that's the first part is I don't think that they think that the debt ceiling itself is something that Americans are going to be upset about. But they do think that the way that they, you know, perversely uh, morph it into something else could be something they could be upset about. And then the second part is what we've been seeing since the Biden administration took office, which is, well, we're not going to allow them to do anything on a bipartisan basis because we know how how much they want to say that, you know, President Biden, who ran on the idea that he can get along with Republicans, how much that the Biden administration wants to say, well, look, we worked with Republicans on this and it doesn't matter what it is. They're just not interested in delivering that to him. Yeah. And they also, you know, they they want to attach chaos to Biden. Now, I know I've talked about this in a couple episodes, but, you know, Afghanistan and the botched pullout of Afghanistan has given Republicans a, you know, they seize on it as a political issue. And now I think they're trying to put more and more, not that they were, they were agents of order before all of this, but they seem particularly gleeful about sown chaos around the country and putting it at the doorstep of Biden. And I imagine a lot of our listeners have had conversations that I've had with people who are even Biden voters, you know, like some of those more reluctant Biden voters who, who are using words like incompetent more often than I've heard before when describing Biden. And obviously that's, that's played out in his poll numbers, which depending on which polls you're looking at, you know, have dropped from above 50 to low forties since Afghanistan. So is this, you know, I know that's not very moral to sow chaos uh, for political gain, but is it smart politics for them? Yeah, I think it's it's clearly the move, right? Because when you think about it, there's a couple of things at play. You've got the fact that if you had to point to one thing that made the difference in the election, it's probably the fact that voters just were like really tired of waking up every day and not knowing who the president was going to potentially launch a missile at because he was angry or, you know, there was just this sense of chaos, incompetence, and there was fatigue from all of it. And and what did the Biden campaign have as its chief selling point? Look, we're going to be calm. You're not going to wake up every day worrying about us. There's not going to be a crisis, you know, every day. And that means that if that's your main selling point to get elected, it's your main selling point to get reelected. And it's your main selling point to hold power that you have in the Congress. So if they can get up every day and they can, you know, punch holes in the idea that there's less chaos, we also have to remember that Americans, frankly, at this point, like we have a pretty short memory and a pretty short attention span. And so they're not trying, like, this is the mistake I think a lot of liberals make is we think that it's an apples to, you know, to oranges comparison that we're just going, well, Trump or apples to apples. I don't know how that expression really works, I guess, <laughs> you know, whatever, uh, that, you know, people will, will make the direct comparison in the midterm elections that they made in the 20 elections of, well, Trump was really chaotic and it was really scary. Biden is so much less chaotic and so much less scary. No, what they're banking on, and they could be right, is that 
two years of them saying, look at look at the disarray that this is, look at how incompetent this is, that they can get a lot of voters to go, there wasn't really a difference. Now, there was a huge difference and there is a huge difference, but you can make people feel like it's just as chaotic. So what's the difference? And that's how you get a voter who, for instance, uh, abortion is their main issue or low taxes is their main issue. That's how you bring them back to the Republican column is you have them go, you know, that thing that caused you to stray from us. That's a wash. It doesn't matter. You may as well come back. Yeah. And speaking of short memories, the smart politics here are also in favor of this sense of saying that Democrats are are the people who you know, spend like drunken sailors and have no discipline and they, they're racking up debt that your future generations are going to pay for. And I think they're banking on the fact that the American people, by and large, have certain stereotypes of the two parties. They think of Republicans as fiscal conservatives and think of Democrats as the party that's going to be more in favor of expanding government or more likely to to overdo it on the spending, right? Uh, and so it's kind of like the patriotism debate, right? It's so hard for us to win these battles of patriotism, even when the Republicans are, you know, committing treason in 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 plain sight. And so to go off of that point you made of the short memory, I want to just remind our listeners of the history here, right? This debt ceiling thing has been going on for a long time before actually you and I were born. I saw a video the other day of Reagan. I think it was uh, a little over two weeks into his presidency. He gave a speech where he was basically finger wagging saying, I cannot believe you're making me raise the debt ceiling Congress in 1971 decided to put a ceiling of 400 billion on our ability to borrow. Today, the debt is 934 billion. So-called temporary increases or extensions in the debt ceiling have been allowed 21 times in these 10 years. And now I've been forced to ask for another increase in the debt ceiling or the government will be unable to function past the middle of February. And I've only been here 16 days. Before we reach the day when we can reduce the debt ceiling, we may, in spite of our best efforts, see a national debt in excess of a trillion dollars. Now, this is a figure that's literally beyond our comprehension. Our national debt today in 2021 is $28 trillion. Um, And one of the reasons why it is $28 trillion is because presidents like Reagan dramatically increased the national debt despite saying it was a problem. So it actually doubled during his presidency. It went up again during H.W.'s presidency. Clinton, to his credit, actually cut the debt to the point where we're having an annual surplus towards the end of his administration. If you remember, we had you know SNL skits about the lockbox. What are we going to do with the national surplus, which seems like a million years ago? Uh, maybe it was. We're old. Uh, <laughs> and, like, and I know the politics of that are murky. Like Clinton was dealing with a Republican Congress, and so it wasn't just this like sense of restraint that he had. So it reflected the politics of the time. Bush then takes office and he says, oh, these this surplus is actually a reflection of the fact that taxes are too high. So he cuts taxes, which, you know, I could disagree with that. And in and of itself, maybe could have been a reflection of some kind of difference of opinion, but he cut taxes, but still increased the size of government. So the debt increases under Bush's presidency. Uh, In the first year of Obama's presidency, it triples because of the Great Recession. And, you know, if we're being honest, reigning in the debt wasn't a huge priority of, of Obama. Trump takes office talking a huge talk on the the national debt saying it you know things are like it's a disgrace and yada 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 and then it goes up even pre-covid um because he cuts taxes and uh fails to rein in the size of government and that's where we find ourselves today which is that it is a kind of a bipartisan mess but republicans own this 
as much, if not more, than we do, Jason. So during this pandemic, our country's seen so much hardship. I know you have listeners, and I, I know that a lot of people had periods of time when they either took on unexpected costs or lost income that they were expecting. And our sponsor, Upstart, is really here to help you if you have racked up a lot of credit card debt, which I know a lot of people have done. It's the fast and easiest way to pay off your debt with a personal loan. It's all online. And whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. And rather than looking at credit score alone, Upstart considers other factors like your income, current employment, and credit history to find you a smarter rate for your loan. And you could check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes and for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You could find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Like a lot of people in the pandemic, I've started to cook more, which for me more means cook at all because I wasn't cooking anything before all of this hit. I've been getting really into fish dishes and I bought this really cool cookbook called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and it's got a chapter on cooking fish. And then as I got really excited about these recipes, I realized that there's just a lot of decisions you need to make when you're cooking fish dishes. And there's there are all sorts of issues with the supply chain of fish and the ethics of it and what's healthy and what's not. And what I really love about our sponsor, Wild Alaskan Company, is that they deliver high-quality, sustainably sourced wild-caught seafood right to your door. And so all those questions I was grappling with are solved here. And each shipment contains premium cuts of individually wrapped portions of delicious seafood that are ready to prepare and easy to cook. And you could choose from salmon, cod, halibut, and more, or a combination of them. And every month there are different specials to explore. And Wild Alaskan Company Seafood is how nature intended it to be. Always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. And right now you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. That's wildalaskan, that's A-L-A-S-K-A-N, company.com slash majority54 for $15 off your first box. Wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. Make sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. There is a bipartisan consensus in this country that we like to do our thing, which Republicans like to cut taxes, but they don't want to cut programs in proportion to that. Democrats like to increase the size of government without necessarily increasing taxes in proportion to that. If you remember the Warren debate about not wanting to be specific about what her health care is, we have a bipartisan mess here when it comes to our debt is what I'm saying, Jason. Well, maybe it's a lesson in, in how to discuss this kind of thing with people who are on the fence, right? Because people who are on the fence about the two parties most likely are not too keen on either party. And much like the issue of Afghanistan, much like a lot of our issues, if you can say, look, historically, this has actually been a problem of both parties, but now you have one party just because the Democrats are in charge at the moment in the White House going, well, it must, you know, all 20, 30, 40, whatever amount of years it is, it's all you because you're the one holding the bag when the music stops, which again, I'm now 
taking an expression and making it make no sense. But, uh, <laughs> you know, or you're whatever you're standing when everyone else is sitting when the music stops, you know, just like with Afghanistan, you know, they you have senators on the one hand saying, well, we should have pulled out when Trump wanted us to earlier. And on the other hand, saying, you know, President Biden should have waited to pull out. Really, they're just saying, hey, the music stopped. You're in the White House. You're to blame. Well, it's it's a similar situation every time you have to raise the debt ceiling. Right. And here's the thing that really bothers me. And this is where I'm going to sound like I'm coming out of the Cato Institute or something, is that the the national debt is a huge freaking problem. It is 120% of our GDP right now. It will quickly be higher than World War II levels. And, and there are some estimates that within a few decades, it will be double what it is in World War II. And that's not even taking account the bills that are being debated right now in front of Congress. The largest growing federal program we have is the interest we pay on the national debt. And this is a ticking time bomb because we have this issue of people, you know, the largest group of retirees we will ever have and have ever had in this country uh, who are living longer. Great, which is awesome. Like, I don't want anybody to mistake that I want my mom to live as long as she possibly can and have the greatest life she possibly can. But there are more people retiring, living longer with skyrocketing healthcare costs. And so this is going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. And if you look at the proportion of what we spend, we're, you know, you know, a few decades ago, we were spending about as much on these, you know, quote unquote, entitlement programs for the elderly as we were uh, on investments like basic research and education and infrastructure. But if you look at the graph, it deviates now where we're spending dramatically more on those programs than we are on investments in the future. And once again, I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the elderly. I think like it's a moral imperative, but I think we're we're not asking tough questions about like what's our retirement ages and are we like, you know, figuring out ways to reform those programs to to extend their life. Uh, and we're also not cutting things like across the board that are not working. Uh, and then we're not investing in the the truths of the world, the future generations. And we're going to saddle them with the responsibility to take care of this, like all other messes. So I actually do think that the debt is a real thing. I say this because I don't think that the Republicans have offered a freaking solution that they're willing to use any political capital to see through. We saw that through the Trump years. Well, that's that's. See, that I think is the crux of how this has to be talked about when people bring it up to you, right? Because you can say, look, the Democrats have said that they want taxes to go up in this area or that area to pay for stuff, right? The Republicans haven't really offered anything that they want to cut. So what are they doing? They're just saying, don't pay any of the debt. We don't service the debt, which is like, I mean, it is like if you are sitting around your, your dinner table and you're like, boy, we are having a hard time paying the bills. And somebody says, you know, I, I could go out and get a second job. And somebody else says, you know, I, I, I could look through the subscriptions, the automatic subscriptions that we have like on our phones, and maybe we could, we could cut some of those. And then somebody else goes, oh, I have a solution. Let's stop paying our bills. Like, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what this is. Like, it's not a solution, but, but what they're counting on is the idea that the average American won't really understand that. And that, yeah. what they're, that they want to say is, look, they're in favor of increasing the debt. No, they're in favor of continuing to pay the interest on their mortgage because right. if you don't, you lose your house. Yeah, I agree, man. And, you know, there's a funny saying uh, from Ross Perot. He used to say, like, the national debt is like the crazy aunt you keep in your basement that nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> now, I don't think it's good to keep your aunt in the basement and, and not talk about her, but it just makes me laugh because it's true. Nobody really wants to talk about it. And there are these myths, I think, in our politics, like we can just print more money or whatever. Like that stuff is not true. Like we've got to pay our debt. Like, and 
so it worries me, but there really isn't any daylight. But the Republicans are, are so freaking hypocritical on this. Because, uh, like, if I'm being honest, Democrats are kind of honest about not caring about it. I think Republicans, mm -hmm. they claim to care about it. But it, it, and actually, I didn't, I wasn't fully, like, there's one other wrinkle to what I said about the history, which is Clinton and Obama, like, if you add them up together, they, they increased the national debt considerably less than their Republican counterparts on a, on a year by year basis. And I think the politics of that are tricky. I, I'm not like an oversimplifying things like about like what Clinton was dealing with and why he did it, et cetera. But like, if we wanted to be dishonest about the data and just say, Hey, Democrats do better. Like it's true. Like it's true that democratic presidents have done better for one reason or another. Um, and we have there, that card, you know, there are whole, you're not wrong. There are whole segments of the left uh, who are, you know, like groups of economists who argue that the national debt is irrelevant. I mean, yeah. there there are, so you're right. Like, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that the left is a lot less concerned about the debt than the right claims to be when there are Democrats in the White House. Right. Seasonal like, deficit hawks, I think is what Mike Murphy calls them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one of those Woodward books years ago quoted Cheney as saying, well, we've proven that debt and deficits don't matter anymore. Right. I mean, like right. they, you know, because they were in the White House. Yeah. And they, I think there's also this fantasy that they can rack up as many bills as possible. And then there will be this reckoning to come when they can dramatically decrease the size of government. And what I would want to say to people is that is so easy to say, right? That's like, you know, like having a, you know, a splurge on the weekend. And I'm just gonna be like, I'm going to eat as much as I possibly can. And then this next week, I'm going to tighten my belt. We've all been there before. And how often does it really happen? You know, well, it's, it's worse than that. It's like, I'm going to eat whatever I can. And when I'm 80, I'm going to be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and just assuming, yeah. just assuming you're going to live to 80. The thing about this whole, like, let's count on people that have short attention spans. And then whenever the music stops, we'll blame the person standing there thing that has worked its way into our politics um, is scary because you know where it's going to come, where it's going to become a problem eventually here is climate change. Yeah. Where you got one party that is like, no, 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 we don't got to worry about climate change. That's not a real thing, et cetera, et cetera. And then when like the tornadoes start in freaking, I don't know, downtown New York City in several years and the hurricanes start happening where I live, which, you know, when that's going on, it, on this pace, you're going to have Republicans being like, hey, you know, uh, President Northwest, the Democrat, whoever <laughs> it is, like, they should have fixed this. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. It's my favorite thing I consume every single day. It's the first thing I drink every morning. And it really just gives me that extra boost. And AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is just hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. Uh, and to help each of us be at our best, they simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. And that's what I love about this is that I often will like listen to a podcast and they'll say, you need to take X, you know, you need X micronutrient. It's important because it'll help you sleep better or give you better energy. And inevitably I go read Athletic Greens and AG1 and they have it already taken care of. Um, so that makes things easy. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit 
athleticgreens.com slash majority today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. It's no secret that podcast advertising has taken the marketing landscape by storm. As hosts, our audience trusts us to put our great content and to curate sponsors with products or services that they'll actually find useful. It's not easy to find people. Uh, the process of booking these ads is super time-consuming and can be onerous and it's complicated and messy. It takes a lot of back and forth. It's hard to curate, but it doesn't have to be because there's a company called Gumball out there. What I love about Gumball is a company uh, among the many companies that we, we've read ads for here that I used before Majority 54 ever existed. What Gumball does is it makes it easier to book ads so you could focus less on the back-end work and more on making great content for listeners like you. And the bottom line is that it makes things easy for everyone. Key features for podcasters is that it helps you monetize. You can learn about an advertiser before you say yes. You could choose to work with brands that fit your audience. You can know when you're getting paid and it's easy to track your schedule of like when ads are going to be read and, and so both parties know what's expected of them. And key features for advertisers is that they give you powerful demographic filters to find the right show for you. You could scale and build campaigns with ease, keep track of air checks when ads go live. And so we're on Gumball. So guess what? You can buy ads on our show by going to gumball.fm. That's G-U-M-B-A-L-L.fm and search for Majority 54. If you're an advertiser or a podcaster, have a look at gumball.fm. You browse shows, discover new advertising options, or list your own podcast today. I know it's really hard to keep track of this Kremlinology going on on the Hill, but there, so the GOP is trying to tie this debt ceiling debate to the infrastructure and reconciliation packages, which are two different things. One is, I think, around a trillion dollars that was negotiated in bipartisan basis in the Senate, already passed the Senate. The other is a $3.5 trillion package that hasn't passed either yet. And there are members of the left on the Hill, including Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and others who have been saying that they will only vote for the infrastructure package if the reconciliation package is considered in tandem. It seems that Pelosi was planning on putting them together in tandem, but then just recently, I think yesterday, uh, or either yesterday or this morning, said that she's going to move forward the infrastructure package on its own because they're just having trouble negotiating the reconciliation package. And to make this even more complicated, some members of the GOP, and not a lot so far, but a few uh, Republican members are signaling in the House that they're going to vote for this infrastructure package. And Ilhan Omar reiterated that there are going to be progressives who are who are holding out. Democrats could pass this on their own. They could actually pass this and the reconciliation. How concerned should we be by all this infighting within the Democratic Party? Is this normal politics or a sign of some kind of special dysfunction? Well, I've seen these headlines because it's clearly the... Um it's the prerogative of the Republicans and of Fox News to put this in the old dims and disarray category. Right. And I kind of feel like this is just governing. Like, yeah. I kind of feel like this is like, they're just negotiating. Like, yeah. you know, they, they haven't voted it down yet. They're saying, hey, we're serious. Do the thing we want, which is like what you're supposed to do in a legislative body, right? Like, yeah. they have an agenda. They want their full agenda passed. And yeah, like... They're saying we won't support the limited agenda. We want the whole agenda. It doesn't mean that in the long run, if it's going to come down to like organized labor is going to come to, you know, on an infrastructure package, they're going to come to people who could be the deciding vote. And they're going to say, hey, it was a I understand what you were doing. Bold strategy. 
you put up a good bluff, you put up a good fight. You can't do this. You can't vote this down. Our members, our members need the work. Um, right. That's that's where I. I mean, so to me, it's not it's not infighting. It's negotiations. Yeah, you know what would be strange if we passed four point five trillion dollars in spending, given everything I just talked about, without much of a public debate about the merits of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so you know, uh, so I actually think it's okay for now. Now, if we, if a couple weeks from now we've imploded and nothing gets passed, like. I am particularly invested in this infrastructure package, given the div- like the sort of distinction I mentioned earlier between investments in the future and investments in existing programs. Um, I have views, like I have views of strong views about things I love about the three point five trillion and things I don't like. So I, I I don't have a fully formed view of everything in there yet, but I I do like this infrastructure package. So like like let's let's do that, and you know Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are members of the same coalition as everybody else and I and we are a big tent. And so part of what it means to be a big tent is like when they say they're not gonna vote for it, we gotta take that seriously and you gotta get to the table. And that that doesn't mean we just say my way or the highway, like we gotta, we gotta figure this out, you know? Well, we've also unfortunately gotten used to this idea that when a party takes control uh, in this country of, of either the House or the Senate, that the rest of the body is just irrelevant, right? Like, right. like if if the way that this goes down is it passes and a bunch of Democrats vote against it, but some Republicans vote for it, and that's the difference. That's not a failure. No, that's actually how this is supposed to work. Totally. Um, so that's that's not necessarily infighting. That's a legislative body acting like a legislative body. Yeah. Here's the the thing that's even trickier here, and this is honestly like I have like uh, I'm like Charlie from It's Always Sunny in my office right now, trying to connect all these dots. But it's like. The reconciliation package, the $3.5 trillion, also, I think, is linked to this debt ceiling debate because I think if the Democrats pass debt ceiling on party lines, which I think they have the ability to do uh, and what the Republicans certainly want them to do, I think it has to be as part of reconciliation. So I think what's happening is they weren't ready for the reconciliation yet, but they might have to, They might their, their hand might be forced to push that through faster because- uh, it might be the the mechanism to control for the debt ceiling issue, and I think McConnell senses that and is like, "Whoa, this is like a nice wrinkle I could throw into to things," you know, which is, you know, sinister. Here's what I'll say about all this: is that when I was a state legislator, I I, did, I was there for four years, and I never had the opportunity to serve in the majority. What I did do the entire time was serve in the minority, and I can tell you from watching my friends who were in the majority, that was way harder. It is much easier to be in the minority party where you don't hardly ever have to compromise if you don't really want to. You just stand up and you throw bombs and you yell and you scream. And it's just way easier. It's just way easier to be in the minority. It's not better because you can't change things for the good, but it's way easier. Well, let's talk about misinformation, Jason. There is this claim out there. Uh, and I have really well-intentioned friends, and including some vaccinated friends around the country, who when Biden came out with his vaccine mandate, they were like, this is not helpful. This is going to lead to increased vaccine skepticism, and people are going to dig in because it's Biden, and he's forcing us to, and all this kind of stuff, and it's going to be really unpopular. And there's one very extreme variant of this that I want to mention, um, which is Breitbart, uh, which in an article... Uh, and I think this was in response to something Howard Stern, who I guess is a member of the left now, or maybe he always has. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to presume. But Howard Stern's been very pro-vaccine, 
And Breitbart had an article that said, I sincerely believe the organized left is doing everything in its power to convince Trump supporters not to get the life-saving Trump vaccine. Trump vaccine, interesting. They are putting unvaccinated Trump supporters in an impossible position where they can either not get a life-saving vaccine or they can feel like cucks caving to the ugliest, smuggest bullies in the world. So basically what they're saying is, we want right-wing people to die. And in order to accomplish that, we are forcing them to get the vaccine because they won't get the vaccine if we force them to get the vaccine. Jason, what the hell do we do with that? I mean, I'm, I'm just really embarrassed now because I was in that meeting and I was assured it was off the record. Um, so <laughs> yes. I, no, I, I don't know. What do you do? Let's see. If, if somebody says Well, at least you, talk about the serious part of it, which is yeah. the idea that like there's going to be a a backlash to Biden. And let me arm you with some statistics here just to undergird where I think you're probably going to come down, which is Monmouth came out with a poll right after the, the Biden announcement and showed that there actually was a plus 17 point uh, increase uh, in blue state residents and plus five point increase uh, in red state residents in support for Biden's vaccine mandate uh, or the idea of having a vaccine mandate. So, you know, translation after the mandate was announced, support increased for it in the one poll I could find that was post-Biden. So at least that data seems to suggest that people are supportive of this thing, including in red states. And vaccinations are going up. And vaccinations right. are going up. A good example is New York, where, and this affects my family because my mom is a healthcare worker, uh, New York mandated that healthcare workers have vaccines. And since that announcement happened, we jumped from 71% of healthcare workers with vaccines uh, on August 24th to 92% today. And so it's, it's like the NFL thing we were talking about. Yeah. No, look, if people genuinely think this, I, I think it's just sort of like, well, look, all of the support for the mandates gone up, all, the vaccine, you know, the vaccinations have gone up, but I, it's just like, it would be the dumbest thing ever if what we wanted was people not to get the vaccine. Probably mandating it would be dumb. Now, what the premise of all this is that you will make people more skeptical because you've mandated it and because Biden is for it and that kind of thing. But the problem with that, there's so many problems with that. One problem with that is, is that, you know, I remember one of the frustrations during like the real intense lockdown part of the pandemic was that there were so many mixed messages coming from the government that, you know, everybody was saying, and they're right. Nobody really knows what to do. They don't know. Are we supposed to wear a mask outside? Are we supposed to, are we supposed to socially, what, what are we supposed to do? But what that all goes to is that Republicans and Democrats, for as much polarization as there is in the country and for as much distrust of government as there is in the country among Republicans, at the end of the day, there is a basic comfort that you can't get past that like, when they, the eternal they, the government, the people in charge, when they say something, people internalize that, right? Yeah. It's why it would have made such a difference if from the beginning, you know, President Trump had worn a mask. It's why when the CDC would come out and say things, people were interested in what they have to say. So when the government, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, when the government says, we're going to mandate this. It's it's natural for any human being to, when their government says something, to take note of it and right. to, you know, put some credence in it. Uh, and and for the people who are just like the government said it, I'm not doing it. I'm not sure what the proposed solution to that is. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's anarchy. Like, if yeah. there's something you're trying to accomplish, and your argument is anytime the government says do it, people will do the opposite. Then 
what do you want the government to actually do? Yeah, I, there's one revealing part of this, I mean, more than one revealing part mm-hmm. of it, but the fact that he says that they'd be caving to the ugliest, smuggest bullies in the world, and I think this is this is their thing. They are like, no matter our flaws, we're reacting to this group of elite people who look down on us and who want nothing more than to strip us of our dignity. And I think that's the thing we need to take seriously because if we're being honest, there are members of our coalition who don't often step outside of themselves to just get a sense of how they, they, they're coming across to people. And, and in some cases, there are people who aren't even trying to persuade. They're performing for other people. So it's yeah. more about, like, let me perform to my friends on the left and make fun of people for X, Y, and Z. The reacting, whether in good faith or not, to something that's out there, I don't think it's the majority or even close to it of people in our coalition. And I think our podcast hopefully is an example of that. Like we try to model for people, our listeners, the sense that, hey, like what what is our conversation, our advice on vaccines? It's like, hey, I care about you. I love you. I want you at this family gathering. But, you know, I've got kids and, you know, we got mom here and like I believe in this science. And so as much as I love you, I can't have you here unless you get a vaccine. I think it's in your interest anyway, because I love and care about you too. And I, and I think it will make you more safe, but I understand that this could prevent us from like seeing each other. And, but all I hope is that this pandemic gets behind us and, you know, and we can, we can go back to life as normal, just like you're hoping for that too. Even if we have different interpretations of how to get there. You know? Yeah, it just goes back to everything else. It's, you got to personalize it. If somebody says to you, they're just trying to kill off as many Republicans as possible by trying to get the Republicans to not die, you got to not go crazy when they say that. That's hard. And then you just got to say, look, I don't know about any of that. I just don't want you to die. So I really hope you get the vaccine. And aren't we relatable corner, Jason? I... You might not be able to answer this, but I know you've been doing a lot of work. I just, I know that you, what, what is public about your work is that you've raised a lot of money for the effort in Afghanistan. And so maybe you could talk about that and just maybe thank our listeners. Uh, Cause I know so many of them stepped up and, you know, people wanted to know what they could do. And I, and I want to personally thank our listeners for, for stepping up. Cause I know so much of that came from listeners of majority 54. And uh, I know you're not allowed, you're not really able to say what's happened so far, but just listeners know that that, that information will come at some point. I hope. Yeah. Um, what I can say about it is, is that uh, the goal that I've been pursuing personally of, of trying to help a few families get out while I can't talk about it because I want to continue to make sure it moves forward successfully. I anticipate the next few weeks, I'm going to have some really good news to share. And it, and, and it is, it is because of the help of, of a lot of people. Uh, but on top of that is that even short of that, um, I was able to communicate to the local resettlement agency here yesterday that I'm going to be able to either way use a good deal of these funds uh, to assist them in resettling people who are already on their way here, who got into the airport before August 31st in Kabul and that kind of thing. So, and that's a big deal um, to make sure that uh, that those people are able to to settle here and and to you know be able to feed their kids and and, and get their lives started. So it means a lot to me, and I, I do really appreciate um, everything that everybody's done to support it, and I'm hoping to be able to talk publicly about really good news in the next few weeks. Well, that's amazing, man. You're such an impressive dude. Uh, I mean, most people don't like see something like that in the news and then say, how can I actually affect something happening in this country that's so far away? And I think it's just so freaking 
cool that you stepped up and, and so cool of our listeners to to step in too, man. It's awesome. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for, for plugging it. I appreciate it. All right, your turn. All right. I, I mean, it would be weird if I'm like, yeah, I just surfed in Montauk or something. So let's just leave it at that. Well, I picked up some litter on my way to Montauk, though, Jason. <laughs> good, so good, we're good. good. I'm relatable. For Grabbing Ore, uh, I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, um, but it's still going on. Um, Diana and I are involved in uh, raising money for the Big Brothers, Big Sisters of, of Kansas City. You know, during COVID, a lot of people sort of like those relationships, those big brothers and big sister relationships, they, they kind of waned when people couldn't be together. And so they, to get that going again for a lot of those, um, those pairings, uh, they need funding. And so Diana is actually, if you go to her social media, she's at Diana Kander on uh, Instagram. Uh, if you go there, you'll see that she is actually doing pull-ups like hundreds of them to raise money, uh, for big brothers, big sisters in Kansas city. So I would, I would point people there. Awesome. All right. Leave us a voicemail uh, so we can address your concerns, your issues, your problems you're having with making the argument to your friends and family and acquaintances. It's 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Again, you can go check out Diana's for the grab and or. It's at Diana Kander on Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard, and theme music's provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.